But if you were here last week, we had a, a, a walk through history, in a way, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, but we started in 1, chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm not going to go through it again, but we started there and we came up all the way to chapter 7. And to kind of give a foundation of where we're going, verse 12 is the primary place that began my journey in 1 Samuel. And we're going to go through that in a little bit more detail in a little bit. But I want us to go over and review a little bit of what we already have learned or seen in 1 Samuel. In verses 1 and 2, we see that the nation of Israel was lamenting, meaning they were deeply sorrowful to the point of wailing. <clears throat> I don't know how many of you have ever been to that point of lamenting. And we talked a little bit about being sorry or regretful. But when you are lamenting, it's down to the core of who you are, your soul, that you really have a deep sorrow for the sin in your life, something you've done, and you know that you need forgiveness. That's where the nation found itself. Then in verses 3 and 4, we see the instructions that Samuel gave. He says, And Samuel said to the house of the Lord of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So what did the people do? The people of Israel put away all the Baals and Ashtaroths, and they served the Lord only. So in here we have a recommitment which was a change of mind. We have a repentance, which is a change of heart. We have the removal of false gods, which is a change of worship. We have a restoration, which is a change of attitude. We have a redirection, which is a change of allegiance. We have the rescue, which is a change of outcome. And we have the regeneration, which is a change of life. And we talked about how those Things right there reflect upon us. We have to go through those same steps, the same process as the nation did. We have to lament about our, our sin. We have to have a mind change. And with that, we repent with a heart change. And then our worship becomes different. Our attitude towards things changes. Our allegiance changes. And then the outcome is affected. And by that, hopefully our lives are changed as well. So what did they say? They said, Samuel, we want you to intercede for us. So verses 5 and 6. says Samuel says, I will pray. And then he poured out water, which is a, a sign of their outpouring of their hearts. They fasted. And they confessed. Then we have in verse 7 and 8, the invasion. The enemy prepares, and Israel is fearful. And we saw that because of the past, the defeat that they experienced. The enemy was seeing how the nation was coming together and praying, and all of a sudden they started getting scared. So they were preparing for battle. 
What Israel forgot about was God was going to intervene. So the intervention in verses 9 to 11, what does Samuel do? He offers up a burnt sacrifice, which was a complete sacrifice. Then the outcry, Samuel's prayer, showed a continued dependence upon God. The outburst, God's thunder, a controlled panic amongst the Philistines. And then the overpowering Israel's victory, a conquered enemy. Well, today we're going to look at the rest of the chapter. We're going to call it the inauguration. It's a type of consecration and is the crux of the message this morning. But I want to first, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word that is everlasting, living, transforming, powerful, truthful. Lord, we can stand on it in any storm because the foundation is firm. We thank you, Father, for these things that you've shared with us in your word. May they affect us this morning as we hear. Not my words, Lord, but yours. So we pray, Father, that through the power of your Spirit, would you affect the lives and the ears that are here this morning, in Jesus' name. Started in 1927 and finishing 14 years later, it took over 400 men, mostly minors, having to climb over 500 steps to get to work, along with thousands of pounds of dynamite, which created 90% of these carvings, producing some 800 million pounds of rock debris that had to be removed. These 60-foot figures of four presidents were carved out of granite. The cost of this project was estimated to be about $1 million. And of course, by this time you know that I'm talking about the National Monument, Mount Rushmore. It's a man-made monument recognized all over the world dedicated to the memory of four men that helped shape our republic. When people say the name South Dakota, usually Mount Rushmore is connected. It is said that the reason the area was chosen was the amount of granite that they had to work with, and also they calculated the durability of the granite. And they said that one inch for every 10,000 years would erode. How they came up with that figure, I'll leave that to them leaving us all with a lasting impression of this monument. This monument was built by men to honor men, created for the purpose of recognizing men, and centered around man's accomplishments. In verse 12 of 1 Samuel 7, there will be such a monument, but it will be for a different lasting purpose. A monument that honored God, created to glorify him, and to make a point in time of how God delivered his nation. A monument to remind all who saw it of God's great deliverance and power. What are monuments? A monument is a type of structure that was explicitly created to commemorate a person or an event it has become an important to a part of a social group as a part of their remembrance of historical times, 
cultural heritage, or as an example of historical architecture. The term monument is often applied to buildings or structures. Monuments have been created for thousands of years, and they are often the most durable and famous symbols of ancient civilizations. Monuments are also often designed to convey historical and political information. They can be used to reinforce the primacy of contemporary political power. They can be used to educate the populace about important events. Other than municipal or national government that protect the monuments in their jurisdiction, there are institutions dedicated on the efforts to protect and preserve these monuments that they consider special and have cultural significance. There are hundreds of national monuments, thousands of city and town monuments, and millions of personal monuments and cemeteries all over the world. There are many types of monuments. There are statues, such as the Statue of Liberty, Paul Revere, George Washington. There are sculptures, like Michelangelo's David, the Lincoln Memorial, and the many busts that are in the rotunda in the White House. There are natural rock formations, the Grand Canyon, Half Dome at Yosemite, and the arches in Utah. There are created rock formations, the the Sphinx, Pyramids, and Petra. There are buildings that are monuments. The Twin Towers, now where they used to stand, is one. The Eiffel Tower and the Leaning Tower of Pisa. There are cultural religious, political, military, technological monuments to commemorate victories and defeats. There are monuments for every occasion, every people, every nation, every culture, and every religion. We are a world that creates monuments to remember, to remind, and yes, even sometimes we worship them. Consider with me what kind of memorials or monuments are in your life. Whether you realize it or not, we all have memorials in our lives. Not monuments of stones, but ones built on the monuments of memories. In my study going through this, I separated into two different categories these different monuments. One, natural monuments. Parts of our lives that are are significant and they tell our story. Then there are spiritual memorials. The parts of our lives, when, where, and how God answered prayer. A scripture verse or verses that spoke directly to our need. Thus provided a way, allowing a trial to grow our faith. A significant, direct, and specific time when God met us right where we were. All of those are Ebenezer's of a kind that they are to be reminders to us of God's provision. Those are the Ebenezer's that build our faith and testify of who God is. They tell his story in our life. But how often do we sit down and think of those memories or thank God what he has done? As with other memorials in the Old Testament, the intention of the memorial was to testify of God's deliverance and provision of his grace, 
and especially for the future generation. One commentator writes, Christianity is never more than one generation away from extinction. If we are not careful, America could be well, or could well be exhibit A for this truth. Just think of it for a moment, how far our country has drifted away from its foundation in just one generation. In 1962, prayer in schools was either declared illegal or taken out. 1963, Bible reading in schools was hindered, in some cases prohibited. 1973, we have Roe v. Wade advocating the killing of innocent and the unprotected. In 1980, it was declared illegal to post the Ten Commandments in schools. And now they're working on taking out one nation under God. Some have already done it. We no longer, and I found this out personally, we no longer have a place, we no longer have to place our hand on a Bible in a court of law. When I went for jury duty, I was under the assumption that there would be a Bible in there somewhere. And as people went through and I started to realize, nobody's asking them to put their hand on the Bible and raise their right hand. Whether that makes somebody tell the truth or not is, you know, just ridiculous and arbitrary. But I thought, here it is, some in the, in the Supreme Court are the Ten Commandments listed. But yet in our carts sometimes, in our cities and ordinances and so forth, we don't have one. So even today. You see, God's warning to Israel is not to let the environment of secular society that surrounded them influence or dictate their values. I want you to hear that because we live in a an age that is trying to do that. Today, biblical values are being systematically and gradually removed. We have thought police trying to manage what and how we should think. We have speech police telling us what we should and shouldn't say and how we should say it. We have physical police telling us what we should and shouldn't eat and how we should look. We have environmental police telling us what we should and shouldn't protect. We have religious police telling us how and when and where we should worship. We have spiritual police defining what we should and shouldn't believe. And the list can go on. Deuteronomy 6, verses 12 through 15 says this, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God and serve Him only. And take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Wow. God is a God of holiness. So we come to our passage this morning in verse 12. And we read this. Then Samuel took a stone. He set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. As I told you last week, when I was the last three months going through a trial, a medical issue, I couldn't help but look back 
and reflect on what was God trying to show me. Well, I have pages of a journal that date back from January 10th to April of 24th. And in those pages is, is the story of my Ebenezer. It's not just one point in my life. It's the process God brought me through to get me to the place he wanted. The place I was unaware that I needed to be, but by God's design, by God's grace, by God's truth and promise, help me see and realize that place. There is a plain indication, indication here of the need of further assistance, meaning the stone has helped us this far, meaning there's going to be other trials. But God, who is there for all of them, who will aid no matter what, will help them in any circumstance. The memorial stood halfway between Misfa and Shen, and the words Misfa means the watchtower, and Shen means the tooth. So in between a high plateau and a sharp range of, of hills, there's where it took place. This is where Samuel set up the Ebenezer. People wouldn't necessarily climb all the way up to these heights, but they had to go through this valley. They had to see this stone. The setting, <clears throat> one commentator says, The setting up of this stone was one of the earliest methods adopted for the purpose of recording interesting and important events. These memorials consisted of a single block or a heap of stones. They generally received some significant name or were marked with a brief inscription. And they sometimes became centered around of which people gathered and were placed by more imposing structures as time went on. In Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22, we have Jacob's dream. Some of us are familiar with that. It's a ladder between heaven and earth. But starting in verse 18, verse 18 says, So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. I can't imagine sleeping on a stone. Can you? I mean, sometimes we get a pillow that's really firm, and you wake up with a stiff neck, and I can't help it. Somebody who's laying on a stone, by God's grace, gets up with no problems. But he called the name of that place Bethel, meaning the house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in, his, in this way that I will go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And, all, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The pouring out of oil is symbolic of dedication or consecration. So it wasn't just a stone, but what the meaning held, what the memorial was saying. The pillar was a monument set to recall the event of Jacob's experience and his encounter with a holy God. Genesis chapter 31, 
verses 43 through 55. Genesis 31. This is the covenant between Laban and Jacob. Because they did not trust each other completely. It says, Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters, Those daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these, my daughters, for their children, whom they have born? Come now. Let us make a covenant, you and I. And let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and they made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. And Laban called it Jegar Sahutha, and that's in Aramaic. And Jacob called it Gilead in Hebrew, meaning this heap is a witness between you and I. Therefore he named it Gilead and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with you, to see God is witness between you and me. Set up a stone. Exodus chapter 17. Verses 8 through 19, a familiar story, the battle of the Amalekites. And we remember when they took Moses up on a hill and they said, Moses, as long as your hands are raised, Israel will be the victor. But when his hands came down, they started being defeated. So what did they do? They pulled up a stone and they sat him down and two men raised his hands. And the victory was won by Israel. But then in verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will never war with Amalek from generation to generation. To generation. Now, altars were built of stone, whether they were heaps or uh, square blocks or whatever they were, they were still built of stone. They were for a reason. And one of the most famous stories of using stones as memorials is found in Joshua chapter 4. The whole of Joshua chapter 4 is a great chapter to read through. But I'm going to go to verse 21 to get the gist of what the purpose is. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? When your children ask their fathers, then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. Now you have to imagine that when they come up to the Jordan River, all they see is water. Because they weren't there at that time. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the sea, or the Jordan, for you until you passed over it, as the Lord your God did in the Red Sea, which he dried up 
until we had passed through, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And finally, in Joshua chapter 24, verses 25 through 28, this Ebenezer, this memorial was for a witness, accountability to God. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and he put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth, which is an oak tree, that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it is heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. Now, don't be confused. The stone doesn't have ears to hear. But it was symbolic as a visual aid that whenever they saw that stone, they were reminded of the accountability they had before the Lord. In verse 12, Samuel erected a thankful memorial for his victory to the glory of God and for encouraging Israel. In verse 12, he set up an Ebenezer, the stone of help. If ever the people's hard hearts should lose the impression of this providence, this stone would either revive the remembrance of it, make them thankful of it, or remain a witness against them for their unthankful and disobedient hearts. As I said before, we can look at our lives and look at the memorials we have. Some can be reminders of encouragement. Others can be reminders of we didn't quite get the message from God. And there's consequences. Those memorials of consequences remind us of trying to take things into our own hands sometimes. Talking with different people, we have the idea that, as I was saying before, all we have to do is say a prayer and God hears it. It's not that simple, although God does hear our prayer. But where's your contrition? Where's your brokenness? Where is your lamenting in your heart? You see, we have to get to a place where we surrender those things in order to hear God's word, to see his truth, to understand his promises. That's where I was for three months. Praying all the time. God saying to me, but are you really trusting me? See, I believe with all my mind of God's promises. I've known the Lord for many years. I believe he can do anything. I believe he can do miracles. I believe that he can change hearts. But I wasn't trusting in what I believed. There's a big difference. I want to bring it to a New Testament example. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Another familiar set of verses. 
to most of us. Starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, this stone that the builders rejected, which has become the chief cornerstone, is now a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, and they were destined. Let's just take a look back in history if we can. A building is being erected amidst the dust and dirt. You can hear the clanging noises of hammers and chisels. The builders are ever searching for the right stones to put in the right place as the building rises. They search among the stones close to the worksite because it's easier. But there's one stone that they pass time and time again because of some defect they see with their own eyes. They can't really see any place for this particular stone. But the architect comes by and he sees the stone and he has a place for it. He wants to put it in a place of honor. It becomes, as we shall see afterwards from its designation, the most important stone in the building, the cornerstone. Now the great architectural building which is being erected, that of which every building, common or sacred, is a type of, that of which the Jewish temple was in a special manner a type of, and today the New Testament church is a type of. The Jewish rulers and religious leaders were employed by God to carry out his purposes of love and mercy toward the nation. They were the builders, respectively, in the first introduction. In this imagery is shown that men who are called the builders, but the chief architect has overridden what they saw as useless. You see, Christ is the living stone. He was absolutely the living significance of that stone, of the foundation, of that building. He came before the eyes of those builders with extraordinary claims, with exalted ideas, miracles, love, forgiveness. He was as a stone laid down for them, and all they did was to pass judgment. He was despised and rejected, even to the point of crucifixion. He was to be of no use in their theocracy, established by these religious leaders. But what was despised among men was highly esteemed with God. So in a striking contrast between human judgment, we see God's objective in Christ. 
How do we know this? Because it says, the Lord who says, I lay. It's the Lord who does it. The chief cornerstone is the most important stone of any building, both combining as being in the corner and the support as being the foundational stone. Christ is that foundation for our church. But we as believers, our examples are a type of Ebenezer's as well. Verse 4 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen as precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a spiritual house to be holy, a holy priesthood. It's kind of unique to think of yourself as a stone, isn't it? Because we think of stones as inanimate objects, good for skipping across water maybe. Good for stopping, maybe you have some water running in your house so you build up a little dam, you know. I remember as a kid, you know, we used to take all these kinds of stones and stuff and make uh, kind of like a pond, but we were a little bit mischievous. We dug a hole in the pond and covered it with water. And we would lure younger siblings, oh, come on, just go, you just go through it. All we want you to do is get your feet wet. Well, the hole was like two feet deep. As soon as they stepped into that, boom, they were up to here. What do you think they did? Mommy! Guess what? There's consequences. Especially in an Italian household. As soon as mommy heard mommy, boy, she came out running. And then we ran too. The older we got, the better it was. She couldn't catch us anymore. But also the church is a type of God's Ebenezer to the world. As the stones laid in Joshua 4 were laid in such a way, they were to remind all those who passed by of God's deliverance. And that was a proclamation to future generations. The church should also be a memorial to our world, to the saving grace of Christ, the salvation through his death and resurrection, the testimony of his love, on our behalf, for our sinfulness, for our justification, his sanctification, our, our sanctification and his glorification. So we have Christ as the head, the foundation. We have we as living stones as part of the church, individually and corporately as a body. And getting back to our text, it says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. They erected a monument to the Lord for his protection. And they called it Ebenezer. They established a precedent to the Lord for his faithfulness. Saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. They enriched the memory of God's provision for his deliverance. In the present and for future generations. Is your life reflecting that? You as parents who have children, your children are watching every move you make. They may not tell you, but they're very observant. As grandparents, your grandchildren are watching every move you make. You're in a church body. The church is watching every move you make. If you're in leadership, they're watching every move you make. If you're at work, they're watching every move you make. Every place we go... 
We are a monument, so to speak. We are a memorial to those who don't know Christ. What we represent is what they perceive. If we are not walking with the Lord, there's no point. Now, I'm not saying we're perfect. It's just impossible. But I'm saying, what is your desire? What's your attitude? What's your motivation? Going through those three months and realizing that things were taken out of my control. Things that I didn't expect. Things that God said, you have no choice but to trust me. That's a scary place to be. There are people in this room that have gone through far worse and have come out the other side victorious. And I praise God for that because they are a memorial to myself and to others of what God can do in your life if we allow him. And then we come to the last part. We come to the implications or as a result of. In verse 13 and going, and going on, it says, So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between, the Israel, between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mesphah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and what? He built an altar to the Lord. God's power remained with Samuel. As it says, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere men do to me? Secondly, God's provision returned the land. Verse 14 says, Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And finally, we see God's purpose, verses 15 through 17. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on the circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar. Psalm 51.10 reminds us, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and restore a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my and your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
part of our memorials in our lives is realizing God's salvation in our lives. So many Christians walk around and defeated. And I understand the trials that they go through. But the victories are far more blessing than those trials. But you have to go through the trial to get the blessing. From From January 10th to April 7th of this year, as I said, was my Ebenezer. This trial was designed by God, by his hand, for his purpose for my sanctification and his glorification. Several things I wrote down in my journal I want to share with you this morning as an encouragement. If you're here this morning and you're going through a difficult time, I want you to realize and understand God already knows. God's aware, was aware, has been aware since the beginning of time. He also is aware of what's going to happen afterwards. I reflect upon a couple weeks ago when we said goodbye to Althea. None of us could ever imagine or know that two weeks later she would be home with him. I mean, we're saddened because it, it doesn't seem, it's a disconnect to some degree. But we're so joyous because she's out of her pain. She's out of the trial that she's been going through for years. God knew that that day he was going to take her home. We didn't, but he did. That's where we need to put our trust. Here's some of the things that God impressed upon my heart. He revealed my weakness to expose his strength. He humbled my pride to display his grace. He strengthened my faith to proclaim his truth. He allowed my trial to proclaim his glory. He expresses his love to assure his promises. He carries out his will to prove his faithfulness. Many of us, and this was my verse, or group of verses that spoke to my heart the most, Psalm 139. Many of you know it. And this is how I compressed it in my own heart. This is the psalm I would cling to for over and over during those three months. I found my refuge and peace in knowing that God knows things that I don't know. He also knows things I think I know. Isaiah 64, 8, we have the story of the potter and the clay. That was another book that Shelley gave me that kind of started the process. Because I did feel like a piece of pottery or a piece of clay on a wheel. And this is what, after reading through different places. I'm on the wheel, but I'm not unattended. I'm on the wheel being shaped and molded. I'm on the wheel becoming what the potter desires. I'm on the wheel in the hands of the master. February 27th. Heaven is more than a destination. It's my motivation. Focus on my position, not my present. My position is eternal. My present is temporary. My position is heavenly. My present is earthly. My position is glorified. My present is being sanctified. My position is home. 
My present is just passing through. (laughs) And then on March 10th, I got the song in my mind of God's wonder-working power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood. So I kind of took those verses and adapted them. There is mind-renewing power. There is life-changing power. There is abundant, graceful power. There is surpassing love and power. There is affliction-overcoming power. There is physical healing power. There is glorious heavenly power. Immeasurable mercy and power. Strengthening weakness power. Emotionally stable power. Victory-sustaining power. Prayer-answering power. Life-giving power. Sin-forgiving power. Spirit-filling power. And eternal living power. And again in March... Psalm 17, 6 through 7, two verses. I call upon you for your will. Answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, to those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. And in verse 19, verses 71 and 75. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Believe me, it took me a long time to get to that place in my mind. To be thankful of the trial that I was going through. But it was good, so why? So I could learn your statutes. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So many times in our lives... We don't see the depth and breadth of God's word until we are affected personally. That was another thing that God showed me. There are people around me that are going through difficult times. God said, do you have as much compassion for them as you do for yourself? Are you as sensitive to them as you're trying to be with yourself? No, it was a stripping of my pride. And finally, I'll close with this. Psalm 18, 1 through 6. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. You are my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. And enemies can be physical issues, emotional problems. The cords of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assail me. The cords of shale entangle me. The snares of death confront me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To hear God, I cried. I lamented for help. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry. And it reached his ears. May we never forget how great our God is. The memories that you have of your life, the different things that you've gone through in your life, that you can fall back on and see how God has met you at that need, delivered you through and blessed you, and encouraged you. 
those are the things we need to focus in on. When you're faced with a physical issue and your life possibly is hanging in the balance, there's nothing else that matters, is there? I got to the point and said, what is the worst case scenario? God takes me home. What is so bad about that? Why am I hanging on? Because I didn't see where God wanted me to be. He broke through that pride. He humbled my heart. He gave his grace abundantly and mercy. Will I face other trials? Probably. But I have a memorial. I have a stone, an Ebenezer, that I can look to, remind myself of God and how he ministered to my trials. That I will never forget. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these last two weeks. Thank you for taking your word and making it so real in my life. I pray that the people here, Lord, that no matter what they're going through or what they have gone through or what we will go through, God, you are the same today and yesterday. You do not change. And there are treasures in your word that we can cling to that build us, mold us, and shape us. Yes, we're all on the wheel. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. And sometimes it's hard. But the master potter is molding and shaping us into what he desires us to be. The pot can't ask the, 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 the potter, I want you to make me like this. The master potter already has the design in his mind. He's the only one who can mold and shape into what his desire is. May we be willing pots on that wheel to be molded and shaped by God's precious, masterful, graceful, merciful hands for his glory, for our sanctification, that we may be used for you, Lord. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.